Good afternoon. You'll have to um, excuse me today. Uh, my children broke tradition and gave me an early Christmas gift, a bug. So uh, if uh, you have some awkward pauses or sneezes, uh, it's because of that. Uh, so please be in prayer as we look into God's word. Our reading today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. If you are able to, I would invite you to stand as we read God's word. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for once again for this time and the opportunity we have after uh, spending time in fellowship and uh, remembering you through uh, the emblems uh, to spend this time in your word, especially as we come near Christmas to reflect upon this passage that we have read so many times. And we pray, O Lord, that you will uncover new things out of your word to us today so that we can live life as Christ followers in the way that you have called us to live, O Lord. We pray that in everything that we do, including uh, in our thoughts and our minds, we will glorify you and seek to know more about you. In the mighty and master name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. May be seated. Since we're very um, close to Christmas, a couple of weeks away, you know, we, we want to look through some of the familiar Christmas passages on the birth of Christ. And the most common, the most popular account of Jesus' birth is from Luke. Because Luke, uh, as many of you may know, was a historian who wrote the account of Jesus' birth and his life uh, in order to present it to this man named Theophilus. And he brings a historian's eye to the way he writes. So he has an extensive, comprehensive account of Jesus' birth told from the perspective of many different witnesses. And the reason why it's so extensive is A, to show that this is an event that happened in history. It is attested by multiple people. He also wants to, secondly, point out that in Jesus' birth, life, and death, many Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. And lastly, something that we don't often think about, 
is that in the accounts that he chooses and the way he presents them, he wants to make some theological points, some points that we are supposed to gain and understand as we reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this familiar passage, you know, the setting is an Old Testament uh, law ceremony called the purification of the mother after the birth of a child. So this is Mary who has come for her purification ceremony at the temple. It's uh, 40 days after the birth of the child. So this was 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And Luke combines that ceremony with the account also of uh, the presentation of the firstborn, in this case Jesus, to God at the temple and his dedication to the Lord's service. So, so the setting is when Jesus was like 40 days old. And when you read this chapter, you look at uh, two people, Simeon and Anna. They're two voices, one male, one female, representing, in a sense, humanity, right, male, female, waiting expectantly in the temple to see the salvation of God. And when they see Jesus Christ, they want to affirm the lordship of this baby boy and to give praise to God for his salvation, which has come, Emmanuel, God with us. And Simeon's account, we know, we have read before, is, is uh, noted for his longing to see the consolation of Israel and his readiness to die in peace once he had seen Christ. But the, but the passage with Simeon ends in a weird way, right? He talks about consolation and comfort and peace, but then at the end, he, it talks about pain and the falling away of many and, and opposition to Jesus. And then he says that Jesus will bring a sword of division and hostility and a sword that will pierce the very heart and soul of Mary herself. And so by carefully noting the entirety of Simeon's prophecy to Mary, perhaps it was Mary himself who told all of this to Luke. Luke wants us to understand that there's something different, not only about this baby boy who is Jesus Christ, but something different and unexpected about the consolation and the comfort that he brings. You know, this season, as in every um, time of our life, many of us are longing for consolation, which, all, which means comfort, right? Consolation and comfort. But Luke wants us to ask, are we longing for the right consolation and the right comfort that is available and brought by Jesus Christ? Because his consolation goes contrary or goes opposite to what we might want and expect. So that if we hold on to our own ideas of what comfort is and what peace is, then we might miss the comfort and consolation of Jesus Christ. And if we are not willing to wrestle with this idea of true consolation in Christ and what it means and what it could cost, then this passage says you will either be on the side of Jesus Christ or you'll be opposed to him as many would be in those days in Israel. So Luke is saying, yes, this is God. He's a baby boy, but if you limit your understanding of who Jesus is to this, uh, you know, uh, to this baby boy and the, and the scene in the manger and, and the scene in the temple, he's lying in Mary's arms. If you try to domesticate him to meet your expectations, instead of meeting him on his own terms, 
He says, then the thoughts of your heart will be revealed and brought to the surface. And he will make you realize one way or the other whether you're on his side or whether you're opposed to him, whether you're in conflict with him. And that's not the kind of message that we usually hear at Christmas. Christmas is all about peace and joy and unity and expectations being met. It's a hard message, but it's given in the word of God because it's a necessary one. Even for those of us who have known this baby boy as our Lord and Savior, and we're waiting not for his first appearing, but we're waiting for him to come back to take us to be with him forevermore, to take us home to be with him. This is a message that should cause us to pause and examine our own life and our lifestyle while we wait for Emmanuel to come once again. So in this passage of Simeon's prophecy, I'd like to divide it into three. there's, There's a longing for true consolation, then there's the identity of true consolation, and there's a cost of true consolation. There's a longing, there's an identity, and a cost of true consolation. So the longing, see when you, when you go through Luke, um, predominantly you see he points out three people who are elderly, or as Luke calls them, advanced in years. There, Zacharias, the father, or who would become the father of John the Baptist, Simeon, who we just read, and Anna later on, who was a widow and she was 84 years old. And both Simeon and Anna were those who were in the vicinity of the temple. And Luke wants us to understand the reason why he's showing these people who are advanced in their age is to bring forth the idea that they waited patiently for a long time. See, Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel. It said Anna was waiting for the redemption of of Jerusalem and she did not depart from the temple. They were waiting for God to act. You know, the the German uh, theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was once uh, in 1943, he was in prison in the Christmas, around the Christmas season. And he said, you know, a prison cell like this is a good analogy or a good, um, bears a similarity uh, to Advent or to the coming of Jesus Christ. He said, one waits, one hopes, one does this or that, ultimately negligible things. But at the end of the day, the door, the door, the prison door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. So what he's trying to say is that these people are waiting, knowing full well that it was not them who could expedite things, but it, it was upon God to open the door. And we read about Simeon, and the only thing that Luke notes about Simeon is that he was a layman. He was not a priest, he was not someone who was very important, but he was, a, he was an ordinary person. And the only character note that Luke gives him is not his profession or his age, but the fact that he is a devout believer in God. His, the only thing he tells about Simeon, apart from the fact that he was waiting, is that he was, his spiritual condition was that he was a devout believer in God. And he wants us to understand that true consolation and comfort ultimately is a matter of the spirit and not of the material aspects of this world, whether that be people, places, and wealth. True comfort and true consolation does not reside in the temporal, time-bound, temporary things and institutions of this world, but rather in God. And so Simeon was waiting for this true consolation of Israel. 
And he was waiting for what is prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 2. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then also in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 9, it says, Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted or has consoled his people by, because he has redeemed Jerusalem. So he's waiting for the true consolation of Israel as prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. You know, at that time in Israel, because they were under the rule and the subjugation of the Roman Empire, where they did not have freedom to, to freely live and to freely practice their religion, what people were looking for was a political revolution and uprising and rebellion. They thought the, the Messiah would be someone who would lead them in this uprising, in this revolution that would free them from the Romans. So if you heard of the Maccabees, you know, people thought that, that one of the Maccabee brothers was the Messiah because he was the one who was going to defeat the Roman Empire. But Simeon knew that Israel's true consolation would not come from their liberation from the Roman Empire or, or because they would once again have their own kingdom and their own rule. But because God would redeem his people from their sins. He said the true consolation of Israel, the true comfort of Israel is not going to come when we are free from Caesar's rule, but rather when God is going to take it upon himself to pay the punishment for the, the sins of his people and to redeem them from their sins. And so when he looked at this baby boy of barely a month, he saw the promise of God fulfilled, the means by which God would redeem his people. That God had appeared in the flesh as he calls him the Lord's Christ. That's what Simeon calls Jesus. The Lord's Christ had come to redeem his people from their sins. So whether you are in Christ today or you're outside of him, you will not find true comfort unless you have a longing to find it in the right place, which is that it is a matter of the spirit. And when you have that longing, you will realize that you can only find it in Jesus Christ. If you're attuned to the spiritual needs of your soul, both for redemption from sin and for consolation from God, ultimately, unless you're set right with God, nothing else matters and no other comfort, no other consolation will suffice. That is the longing for true consolation that Simeon had, which ended when he laid his eyes on Jesus. So we go on to the identity of this consolation. So let's read from verse 27 to 33. It says, And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up, he took up Jesus, Simeon took up Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now here Simeon is saying, you know, I have waited and I have watched for a long time. We don't know how old he was, but he was pretty old. He said, my watch has ended. My wait for 
God's consolation has ended. It is time for me to die in peace because he has seen and identified the consolation of God. And who is this consolation? You know, before we go there, you have to understand. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace because according to your word. So Simeon understands that consolation from God comes according to the promises of God which is found in the word of God. So you cannot found, find God's counsel apart from his promises in his word. And those promises have come true in the word become flesh, who is Jesus Christ. And then he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He says, my eyes have seen something. And who is this something or someone? We, because it reads at the end, it says, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him about Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen Jesus Christ. You see, consolation is not an event. It is not a result of something. You know, too often, like, we, when you do something, you're like, I'll find comfort. I'll find peace. But the consolation of God is not an event or a result, but it's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is our true consolation, our true comfort. And what is this consolation? It's salvation. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's being set right with God because our sins have been paid for, our iniquity pardoned. We have been redeemed from the bondage of sin. And Simeon says, this Jesus, God, came down into the world in the presence of all people, which Luke has pointed out, figuratively, in the presence of, you know, there were wise men who were, we don't know what ethnicity they were. We, there were shepherds, you know, who were from, not from the high class, but were from the ordinary uh, subset of life. So people from all ethnicities, people from different classes, in the presence of all people, God has come down in order to save all people, both Jew and Gentile, from their sins and to give them eternal life. He's the light that reveals the salvation of God. He's the light that has come into the darkness. He's the light that brings God's saving grace to the people of the world, to the Gentiles. As we read in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, Isaiah 49, 6 says, he says, it is too light a thing that, that you, he's talking about uh, the Christ, the Messiah, that you should be my servant just to rise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing. That's not enough. But I will make you as a light for the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So he is the light that shines in the darkness to bring salvation to the ends of the world, to the Gentiles. And he is the light that brings glory to Israel because it is through their heritage and through their history that the Messiah who would be the savior of the world would come and indeed he has come. This baby boy resting in the hands of Mary is that Messiah, God come down in the flesh. He is true consolation. And we notice that for Simeon, it is enough to know that God has begun to fulfill his promise of salvation to, to declare that it is time for him to die peacefully. He does not need to see everything that is going to happen from this point on, the events that will bring about the salvation because he has seen the true consolation of God with his eyes and that is Jesus Christ. And he trusts in the sovereignty and faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. So he has peace. You know, he probably did not 
lived 33 more years to see how that promise would be realized through the sacrifice of this very same Jesus on the cross of Calvary. But he has peace because he knows God is faithful and his promises will come true. And he has seen with his eyes the consolation, which is not to be found at events or in changed circumstances. It's not to be found in, in a changing of everything in your life, but rather it's to be found in a person who is Jesus Christ, who has brought us salvation. He has become our salvation so that we can be made right with God and have everlasting life. So Simeon has a longing for true consolation and then he identifies true consolation as being Jesus Christ. Now this passage had ended at the previous verses and we just skipped ahead to Anna. This would make what many would say is an ideal Christmas passage, right? It's all joy, all peace, hope, promises are fulfilled, waiting is ended, expectations are met. But it does not end there. He goes on to say, and the last thing he says to Mary, verse 34 and 35 of chapter 2 of Luke, he says, And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, Luke carefully places the saying, like we said at the beginning, he probably heard it from Mary or from someone close to her. He places the entirety of Simeon's prophecy so that Simeon's prophecy, his praise, would be seen and understood and evaluated in the context of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death. And most critically, Jesus claims about himself what he taught, all of that is which is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. He wants us to understand it in the context of what is going to happen and the supreme obedience and unquestioned allegiance from his followers that Jesus Christ demands and expects without compromise. So he places the saying at the end in order to make us realize that you have to see everything that has been said before in the context of what is about to happen. Luke is saying through Simeon that if you think the peace of Christ means some fluffy idea of peace and comfort and relaxation that you may have, well, I want to rid you of any such false notions. He's saying comfort is going to come, but it's going to come at great cost to all those who follow this child. So Simeon says to Mary, this child you're holding is appointed, or the word there means is going to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel. That is, many will be saved through him, but as many or more will be destroyed because of him. See, notice that he says Jesus is the cause of the rise and fall. The rise and fall is not the effect of Jesus Christ, but he himself is going to cause it. In our responses to him, either we rise or we fall. There is no middle ground. He'll be a sign from God, but he'll be a sign that will be fiercely opposed by so many, 
so that the deep thoughts of their hearts will be revealed, laid bare, brought to the surface in their response to the Messiah, which, who is God's salvation. You know, all the things that were hidden under the surface is going to be brought up in their response to Jesus Christ. And so we see the complexity and the cost of knowing and following Jesus. It's not simple. Because Jesus has come to cause division. He has come to cause conflict between people. That's what Simeon is saying. Yes, I have peace. I have found comfort. But this child is going to cause conflict and division. You know, Tim Keller says this about this passage. But why people find Jesus so complex? And he says the answer is because in himself, in, because in Jesus, he combines both the overwhelming attractiveness of his life, everything that he did, and the overwhelming repulsiveness of his claims, everything that he said. If you understand both of these things, the overwhelming attractiveness of his life, combine that with the overwhelming repulsiveness or the, you know, the, the, um, the anger or the controversy of his claims, then you will see why people will either rise or fall, but he, lives, he leaves nobody alone. He leaves nobody in the middle. So Jesus had an attractive life. He cared for the poor. He uplifted the, the, the downtrodden. He healed those who were sick. He established what you could call as a universal brotherhood of all men and women. He established a way of life that changed the lives of billions of people. And the course of this world and human history his morality and his ethics has laid the foundation of the modern world. So Jesus Christ as a philosopher is the influence that underprints so many of the things in this world. Politics and economics and so many things. Everyone from Marxists to capitalists will somehow claim Jesus Christ to be some, someone who supports their ideas. So people would want to put him in a place and say, here is the potential of what human life can achieve or how to be a leader or how to attract people to a cause, how to show people how to live. So he has an attractive life. People are attracted to what he did, what he was able to achieve. But then you consider what this man said about himself. John chapter 14, verse six to seven, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So you hear this, you think, you're, you know, think of yourself in the place of a Jew. You're saying, hold on, you know, Jesus. You're saying that everything that we have done as a people, given through the law from Moses, God's prophet, for a thousand years, before you ever walked on this earth is now not enough. That we can only approach God through you. More than that, we can only know God. You're saying the people of God can only know God through you. And that you are God. And that when we see you, we have seen God. And Jesus said yes. Then Luke chapter 12, verse eight to nine, he says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me, denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 
So now you hold the power of life and death before God so that only those who follow you are going to live. But everyone else, regardless of their religion and their good deeds and their knowledge or their ignorance, they're all going to be consigned to eternal damnation in hell because they do not follow you. And Jesus says yes. And you know, these exclusive claims of Jesus to be the only way to salvation is no longer deemed polite or correct to say loudly in society. But can you imagine the uproar? This would have caused among the Jews in Israel, the people who considered themselves to have unique and exclusive access to the word of God and the prophecies of God who claim to be the only way to God. And now this man from Nazareth with questionable parentage and, and radical thoughts, he's saying he's the Messiah, he doesn't offer any hope of political revolution and yet he says that he is God and he holds the keys of life and death for all people, including the people of God. See, this conflict in Israel regardless of whatever other divisions that they had amongst themselves, did not exist before Jesus came. That one man came and said, I am God. Either you follow me or you're going to hell. So he's divided, he's created a conflict where there used to be none. You know, you think Jesus was crucified because he clashed with Rome over taxes or because he was revolutionary, as some people would say. No, he was crucified because his people could not stand what he said about himself. No matter how attractive, how exemplary his life was. And so that's what Simeon says, our hostile thoughts will be revealed. And when these thoughts were revealed, the result was his death on the cross. You cannot escape it. The angels who proclaimed Jesus' birth to the shepherds said that he's bringing peace on earth and goodwill to men. But Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 36. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. He's not negating what the angels say. He's saying, you understand what it is that I'm trying to say. He says, do not think I've come to bring peace that you want to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. He brought the sword of conflict and division, not just to divide people who just shared you know, a passport or who shared a heritage, but he, to, he, he divides, he ruptures the most basic and natural of human relationships by the exclusive claims he makes about himself so that he makes enemies out of those who share the same blood, the same womb, the same house. And lest Mary think that somehow, you know, Simeon is talking about other people. He, he says to her, it's in brackets in most of your Bible, he says, this sword of division and conflict will pierce your own soul, your very heart. You know, often we think that this is, this is foreshadowing Mary's pain at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But if you read it in context, Luke has not mentioned anything about the crucifixion. He's mentioned things about the birth of Jesus Christ and what is going to happen when people hear and acknowledge what he has to say. And so in context, he's saying, Jesus' life and ministry is going to bring much pain and anguish to 
his own mother. And you can see examples of that throughout the Gospels. You know, in Greek, there's a, tame, there's a term for Mary. She's called Theotokos. Literally means God-bearer or God-carrier. While we do not share you know, what the Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox say about Mary, we recognize that she's blessed because she literally carried God in her womb. She's a God-bearer. So one day, Mary comes with the brothers of Jesus to talk to him. And she's the God-bearer. And not only that, Joseph has probably been dead for quite some time. So she's brought up these kids by herself, this brood of, you know, of, of, of brothers. And she wants to have a word with her eldest son. And she stays outside, because that's what you would do, right? And she says, tell my son to come talk to me. Mark chapter 31, verse, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 34, it says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And what Jesus said, he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. You know, another time, Luke chapter 11, verse 27 to 28, Jesus was speaking to people, and it says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Blessed is the woman who was able to carry God in her womb for nine months. But he said, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Can you imagine someone hears this and goes to Mary and says, listen to what your son is going around and saying. All her claims of authority on him because of the fact that she carried him and had the right to expect that her firstborn son would be in allegiance to her, could not overcome the authority of his heavenly father over him and the necessity of his ministry, even at the cost of the relationship and the expectations that she would have had of her firstborn. And it is not just in Mary's relationship, but in many of the things that Jesus taught that we see how radically he redefines the necessity and importance of things on this earth in relation to the privilege of knowing him and following him. You see, the cost of true comfort is not just division and conflict, but the utter submission and irrelevance of natural relations and expectations to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know he did not marry or have children. But not only that, he says in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He said, you have, if you cannot bring yourself to hate your own father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters, even your own life, the very things that give you identity and purpose and your existence, you cannot be my disciple. You know, C.S. Lewis 
says about this text. He says, it is only profitable to those who read it with horror. He's, he goes on to say, the man who finds it easy to hate his father, the woman whose life is a long struggle to not hate her mother, should probably best keep clear of it. What he's trying to say is that if you are inclined to hate your father or mother, Jesus is not giving you a justification to do so. But he's talking to the majority of people who are not like that, whose natural expectation is that they would guard and that they would take care of their children and their fathers and their brothers and their wives and their husbands and everything else. And then he goes to them and says, if you're not willing to hate them, you have no ability to be my disciple. You know, one man went to Jesus and said, Luke chapter 9, verse 59 to 60, Jesus said, told him, follow me. But he said, Lord, my father has just died. Let me first go and give him the honor that he deserves and bury him. And verse 60 says, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, proclaim and go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The next verse is in the same chapter, 61, 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say goodbye to those who are at home. You know, people who have authority over me, people I have accountability towards. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, what I find interesting is that a lot of people in the world today go around saying, Paul is the reason why Christianity is so offensive. You know, all the problems that, that, that is created between society and Christianity is because because what Paul wrote. If you just followed what Jesus said, there would be no problems. Everyone would be accepted. Everyone would be welcome. Just follow the red letter, you know, red letter Christians. And I wonder, if, have they ever read the Gospels? And I say, thank God for Paul. Because the Holy Spirit through Paul gave us instructions on how to live our lives in this world while we await the coming of your Savior, while we have this tension between you know, the fact that we are saved and yet we are will, waiting to be saved and taken home. So he gave us instructions on how to live in your family, how to recognize sin, how to repent, how to manage your finances, everything. If you go, to, if you go to exclusively to what Jesus says about all these things, you will find it very tough. You know, someone once one then asked Jesus for marriage advice. It was actually a trick question. The Pharisees or the Sadducees wanted to know what Jesus would say when they said, you know, Mo Moses allowed us to divorce, so one man has seven wives in heaven. Uh, sorry, the wife had seven husbands. And in, in, in heaven, whose wife should she be? But Jesus didn't answer that question. Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then the disciples, this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 8 to 12, reading verse 10. Then the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, if you are saying that we have no recourse, 
oh, we didn't realize we were incompatible. We didn't realize that we were not right for each other. We didn't, you know, this and that, we're like we're not the right fit and what else. The disciples said to him, if that's the case, it is better not to marry. And you know what we would say? Well, marriage is difficult. Yes, it has challenges, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's an institution. It was created at creation. Man has a longing for companionship and intimacy, which can only be, which can only be found, which can only be fulfilled in the relationship that God has ordained between male and female. You know what Jesus said? He said to them, you're right. Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. So the disciples said, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, yes, you're right. And then he says, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. He's saying there are people who have suppressed their need for sexual intimacy because they have some, um, they, they have had, they have some physical deficiency from birth or they have been made so by someone else, which was a practice that they used to do, or there are people who have willingly suppressed it themselves for the sake of the kingdom. And then he says, if you are able to receive it, you receive it. You know, Paul said, if someone is caught in sin, you pray for him, you go rebuke him, you put, throw him out of the church, uh, continue to pray for him, and you restore him once he has repented. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 18, 8 to 9, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, you tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Paul said, live quietly, work with your hands, provide for your family. You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And Jesus looking at him, Mark chapter 10, verse 21 to 22, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The thoughts of many will be exposed, revealed, and brought to the surface because of this baby boy who is lying in Mary's arms. And so you ask yourself, why does Jesus bring the sword of conflict? Why does he so marginalize and trivialize the necessary and important things of life? And the answer to that is Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 to 39. It says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because he's saying ultimately, there's only one important thing. Do you know me? Are you willing to come under the covering of my blood to take away your sins? Are you willing to hate everything and everyone and throw away all that gives you a sense of purpose and identity in order to follow me? Not that it is necessary, but rather that if push comes to shove, then you will be able to do it. If you are not, then you are not going to find true comfort and true consolation. Jesus says, I am the consolation of Israel, the comforter of God's people. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you try to find comfort in anything and anyone else, 
you fix the problems in your family and your marriage and your career without me being supreme over every aspect of your life, then you're basically rearranging, as they say, the armchairs on the Titanic. You are fiddling while the ship is sinking. It says, only I can rescue you from your sins. Only I can be your true comfort and no one else. And if you claim to be my followers, then I don't want to be priority number one. I don't want to be the top of your list. I don't want to be in a list, one, two, three, four. I want to be the entirety of that list. I don't entertain sharing my claim over your life with something or someone else. Jesus doesn't want his people to redefine their priorities, but to redefine their identity. He says, I want to be the sum total of your identity, your life, your purpose, your expectation, your comfort, so that when someone looks at you and knows you, they know that you belong to me. Body, heart, mind, and soul. Because nothing else in life, or to be more clear, everything else in life cannot bear the weight of our expectations and the burden of our sin. We are so fallen, we, are, you know, we still live in the flesh that everything we touch, we somehow ruin. Because we place our need and our expectation on these things. And then we ruin them through our sinful natures. But Jesus says, I will bear the weight of your expectations. I will bear the burden of your sins and take it away. So that when you place your trust and your needs and your expectation of comfort solely in me, if you are willing to lose all these things, not just place them second. He doesn't want to be number one. He wants to be everything. If you're willing to lose all these things, then you will find comfort apart from them. You will find comfort in me, and perhaps then you can find peace in these things as well. Rather than trying to find peace in these things and failing, because these things cannot bear the weight of your sin and your expectations. That is the radical cost of true consolation. You know, if Jesus was just about bringing hope and peace and joy, everyone would be a Christian. And in the beginning of his ministry, everyone was, right? After the feeding of the 5,000 people, they could, not, they could not find place to accommodate all the people. You know, there's a concept uh, in popular culture of the bandwagon, you especially hear it in sports, right? Like uh, you have a team that's not, like a basketball team that's not really winning, it's garbage. And then suddenly they start winning. People crawl out of the woodwork. Oh, I've been a fan since I was three and all that and then you know, you cannot buy a ticket and so on. That's a bandwagon. People have come aboard the bus because they think it's going to bring some joy and peace and comfort and some kind of happiness to them. And then when that team loses, they jump off because they are not real followers. They're not resolute. Jesus had a bandwagon when he fed the 5,000, when he healed the sick. When he told these things about himself, people got off the bus. You know, he came to redeem Jerusalem. Towards the end of his life, Luke chapter 13, verse 34, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he cries, looking at the city that he came to redeem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often 
Would I, have, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing? I have come to redeem you, but you will kill me. And yet I'm going to come because only in my dying, only in your killing of me is that redemption that you seek going to be accomplished. He went resolutely alone, no one around him, to fulfill his ministry, the calling of his father, the redemption of his people. You know, we talked about the, the attractiveness and the repulsiveness of Jesus. And as humankind, I think we understand instinctively, there's something about this man. We like what he does. We hate what he says, but there's something about him that cannot be just washed away, that cannot be just consigned to the dustbins of history. And that's why you see in, you know, in a lot of like fiction, there's this idea of a Christ figure. You know, if you read stories, you, you can read in, from you know, Asian cultures or Middle Eastern cultures or, or European cultures. You won't find many heroes who look like Buddha. You know, the hero who left everything and then found Nirvana. Or you won't find many heroes who look like Muhammad. You'll find a lot of heroes who look like Jesus Christ. You know, like uh, Charles Dickens in his book, Tale of Two Cities. At the end, it's like, a, I guess, a spoiler alert. The guy who looks like the other guy who was condemned to die, instead goes and dies in his place. There is uh, Lord of the Rings and, and Frodo Baggins, you know, the least of all of the people who was willing to take great burden upon himself to get rid of the ring. That's too old for you. You know, in the movie The Dark Knight, at the end, Batman decides to take upon himself all the sins that the villain uh, Harvey Dent had done because people look up to this guy. And he said, you tell them that he was a good guy and instead you make me the bad guy because I want people to have hope. So he takes upon the sins of Harvey Dent and he runs away. And then his friend, Commissioner Gordon, his son comes to him and says, why is Batman running away? Because he has done nothing wrong. And then Commissioner Gordon says, yes, but he is the hero that we don't want, but he's the hero that we need. There's something about Jesus Christ that cannot be removed from the imagination of people. So Pilate one day would bring the hero of Jerusalem in front of the Jews and said, here is your king. What do you want me to do with him? And they said, crucify him. See, he was lonely at the cradle and he was lonely at the cross. The comfort that he provides may not be the answer that we are seeking, but it is the one that we need. And so Jesus asks, are you willing to lose friends? Are you willing to lose family? And you ask, but Lord, these people they're better than 90, 95% of the Christians that I know and although their only fault is 
they do not know you or they're living in some kind of sin or, or something that you said, they don't want to accept that. You're saying that, that I have to go tell these people that they're going to hell because they do not know you. And he says, yes. And then you say, but that'll make me repulsive. That'll make me a bigot. That'll make me someone who will be opposed. And Jesus says, yes, they are repulsed by me. They will be repulsed by you. In John chapter 15, you know, he says in verse 18, the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they were repulsed by me, they will be repulsed by you. That is the cost of true consolation while we live in this world and while we endeavor to make Christ supreme in our lives. If you do not know this true comfort, may I ask you to consider him this Christmas with longing and right expectation because true comfort is in yours being set right with God, not finding peace in the things of the world. And for those of us who are still waiting for the completion of our consolation, like Simeon, he said, my eyes have seen your salvation, now I am at peace. Know that he has not left us alone. He has ascended into heaven, interceding at the right hand of God. He is our comfort, but he has also given us another comforter, as we read in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit. He said, I will go into heaven but I will give you another comforter. He has given us the word of God. Hebrews chapter four and verse 12. He says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Where he is the sword. The word of God is a sword. It pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he will comfort us, and he will restore us, even when we go astray, through the spirit and through the word. He will reaffirm his supremacy over our life even when we do not want to submit to his claim over us. And for those who wait with longing and with the right expectations, he has promised in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with your sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are we willing to wait eagerly and with the right expectations like Simeon did for this God, Emmanuel, to once again come and take us to be with him. Do we have the right idea of him? Do we know who he really is? Do we understand the totality of the claim that he makes on every square inch of our lives? That he does not want to share his lordship over us with anything or anyone else. That this baby boy is the king of kings and lord of lords. You know, around Christmas season, many places they do a performance of Handel's Messiah. This is not very popular in my home and I guess not in many other homes either because it's like, a, it's like an opera taken entirely from scripture. But it's very famous. You, you would have heard at least one of those things, which is, it's called the Hallelujah Chorus. I won't sing it to you. Go to YouTube. But I'm, I'm sure you have heard of it. It says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and then the, and the choir goes, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And usually the people join and They say, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. You know, everyone's dressed in white. People are standing. They're applauding. They're cheering. And, and I was reading 
you know, one, one person was, re, was watching this. He was reviewing it. He said, you know, I went and looked in the Bible where this comes from. It, says in, it, is, it comes from Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. It says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows about himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. You think all the people who sing along understand that who they're singing about is God, is, is a man who's riding this white horse. His robe is white but it's splattered with the blood of the people that he sits in judgment over. With the blood of people he has vanquished with the sword that has been given to him to execute judgment. That's why he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he, this baby boy in Mary's hands that Simon is praising and prophesying about, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. If you're going to follow him, know what it's going to cost. Know who it is that you're going to follow. Because he is the one who claims supremacy over your life. And he will brook no opposition. So let us wait patiently with longing, willing to pay the cost to find our true comfort. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time. For your word, Lord, that even uh, in the smallest aspects of its uh, words and its text uh, gives us so much meaning and illumination into ourselves and most importantly into who you are and who your son is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we celebrate him, as we remember his coming into this world the first time, may it be, O Lord, that we take into heart the words of Simeon, that he indeed is our true comfort and our true consolation, but that there's a cost that we have to be willing to pay if we have to find this true comfort. So we ask a lot that you give us the ability to examine ourselves, to have our thoughts brought to the surface by your word so that we can be honest with ourselves and ask whether you indeed are king of kings and lord of lords over our life. And we ask that if any in this congregation today do not know you as their lord, as their king and as their savior, that they may take this time to examine your claims and to realize that it is true and that your spirit will guide them to find true comfort. May we live a life that is worthy of your name and of your calling this Christmas season. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we ask.